Well, good morning and welcome to, the, to week three of our How to Study the Bible course seminar. Over the last couple of weeks, we've considered some of the basics of Bible study. In particular, we've looked at the study method of inductive Bible study. Inductive Bible study uh, is, that method is described by three terms, if you remember, observation, interpretation, and application. Or to phrase that in terms of the background questions that are there, what does the text say, what does the text mean, and what does the text mean for me? Now this morning, we're going to consider some unique principles that you need to know in order to faithfully interpret both the Old and the New Testaments. So the, word, the, the main verb you heard in there was interpret. So we're going to be talking in the realm of interpretation. The last couple of weeks, we spent a lot of time with the observation, seeing how the observation flowed into interpretation and then application. Today, we're going to be talking about the particular task of interpreting the Bible and how, the, how understanding what the Old and New Testaments are and what's kind of contained in them can help us to study our Bibles and understand and come to better conclusions about what the text may mean. So I'm going to give you uh, uh, some principles or lenses that will serve as interpretational guide rails uh, that will keep you on the right path. We're going to cover the Old Testament first and the New Testament, although as with, as with anything, there's a good blend in terms of overlap between the, the two of these. In, the, in other words, the principles that are applicable to one may also be applicable to the other. I'll be discussing them in the area where they are the most helpful or provide the most insight. Fair enough? So it's been said that interpreting the Old Testament is a bit like being watched while you carve a turkey. It's fairly easy to start well, but you quickly have to make some tricky decisions about which everyone has an opinion, and it's very easy to end up with a sticky mess with lots of parts left over that no one knows what to, exactly what to do with. Nevertheless, despite the challenges of interpreting the Old Testament, it remains God's word and represents the majority of the Bible, right? 66 books, only 27 of them are New Testament. So the majority of our Bible is Old Testament. So knowing how to interpret the Old Testament well is going to serve us in terms of understanding what the Bible means. So I want to give you five interpretive lenses or principles that will help you humbly examine and rightly interpret Old Testament passages. Like I said a minute ago, some of these lenses can and should be also be applied when talking about the New Testament, uh, but they're particularly useful when looking at Old Testament passages. So here are the five, and you should have those in your notes. And again, if you didn't grab the notes, feel free to grab a set, but you have all of them written here. The five principles or lenses are context, covenant, canon, the character of God, and Jesus Christ. Context, covenant, canon, character, and Christ. The first interpretive lens we're going to look at is context. We talked about context a lot during the last couple weeks as we discussed the inductive Bible study method, and uh, and we're really going to keep cycling back around to this idea throughout the course. Understanding any Bible text, Old Testament or New, begins by reading it carefully in context. And most, most errors with interpreting the Bible come from a misunderstanding of what the passage's context is. So here are some questions you can ask as you fill in the context of a passage. Who's the author? 
Who's the intended audience that the author is writing to? Keep in mind that the audience can shift during the course of a book, right? You have the whole overarching audience, but individual, in, internally there might be smaller audiences that the author addresses. So it's always important to ask that question of every single passage. When was it written? What's the date? Helps us understand where in history this falls. And that's going to become relevant when we talk about covenant in a minute. What's the author's intent in writing the book or the passage or the section that you're looking at? What's his purpose? Obviously the purpose of the book is, the, is kind of the largest purpose. But even as the, as the author goes through different sections, there'll be other purposes that become clear as the author writes out and decides what to include and what not to include. What genre are you in? Genre is something we're going to cover in more detail in a bit, but are we talking about historical narrative? Is this prophecy? Are we talking about wisdom literature? That's going to help you with understanding what the context is and so therefore what the meaning may be. And then lastly, look at the verses just before and just after the section you're reading and trying to interpret. Those, those areas are going to give you clues as to what's happening in your passage, which is in the middle, and provide the context. You know, where, what did we talk about just before? What is he leading into? He or she leading into? That's going to help, help you with uh, under the context of your passage. Knowing context will help you understand what the author means more clearly, and will also help you figure out how to understand the right definition of words that could have multiple meanings. Context needs to determine what, the de- what definition of a word to use, not so much your dictionary. Right? Looking it up in the dictionary is good. That'll give you an idea of where you could go. But the context is what's going to actually give you which definition of the word is going to be in play at that particular moment. Number two, our second interpretive lens is the progressive unfolding of God's plan in the Bible through covenants. This progressive revelation is what we observe as we read the Bible in order. God's plan of salvation is revealed progressively from the beginning in Genesis through each covenant in the middle and culminating in the new covenant with Jesus Christ and ultimately with his return and second coming at the end in Revelation. Right? The way God reveals his plan starts out as a tiny seed, the tiny seed of a promise to Adam and Eve, but then eventually blossoms into the full flower of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And along the way, we see these little snapshots of the progression from the seed to the flower, and we call each one of these snapshots a covenant. Now here's a simple definition of a, co- of a, of a covenant that BJ used from Tom Schreiner when he gave a, an overview of, covenant, of the covenants a couple years ago when we were studying the book of Exodus. Here's the definition. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to one another. So these promises involve requirements and stipulations that must be kept if the covenant is to be held firm. And when we read the Old Testament, we should ask ourselves, what covenant is this passage in? That will help us to understand and interpret what, what is meant by any, any particular portion of, of, the, of the book that we're looking at. Each of the covenants reveals some new dimension of God and his plans to save his people. Knowing what covenant a passage comes from will help you to interpret it well. 
So I'm just going to go over. You have a list there in your notes of the of the the biblical covenants. Most of these happen. They're all in the. They're all mentioned at least in the Old Testament. Obviously, the New Testament is the full description of the last one. I'm going to go over a quick description of each of them. If you're interested in hearing more in depth about the covenants or studying that a little bit more, I would encourage you to go back to BJ's September 17th sermon from 2017. It's when we were in the middle of the book of Exodus. And he did a more detailed overview of these covenants. So I'm just going to go through them quickly. You can see there's passages there in your outline um, that would allow you to go back uh, on your own time and look at at where each of these covenants is first articulated in the scriptures. So the biblical, covenant, the biblical covenants include the Adamic covenant. So this is the, the, the covenant that God made with Adam, where Adam and Eve were to work and tend the garden. They must not eat from a particular tree or they will die. And when they fall, God promises salvation by sending a savior to crush the serpent. That's the, that's the Adamic covenant. After that, Noah comes on to the picture. He's our next major character. And so we have the Noahic covenant. And through faithful Noah, God redeems the earth after massive sin. He promises never to destroy the earth like in the flood and seals the promise with a sign, the bow in the sky. After the Noahic covenant comes our next major character in Genesis, Abraham, with the Abrahamic covenant. And through faithful Abraham, we have a holy nation called out. God promises a great land to live in. And as well, he promised the promise of a widespread blessing to all the peoples of the earth comes. And again, this covenant is sealed with a sign, sealed with the sign of circumcision. After, after Abraham... The people go into Egypt and are in Egypt for a number of years. And on their way out of Egypt, we get the Mosaic Covenant. So through faithful Moses, the law is given to the nation. And blessing is promised for obedience and judgment for disobedience. And here God has clearly declared the standard for holiness and the cost for failing to meet that standard. Right. So that's the essence of the Mosaic Covenant. As the people are working through and trying to obey the Mosaic Covenant in that context, we have the Davidic Covenant that comes about uh, starting in in 2 Samuel. And the particulars of that covenant is through faithful David. You're noticing a pattern here, right? Through faithful somebody, through faithful David, God promises a kingdom from David's line that will rule righteously for all time. And this king will provide rest for the people by conquering all enemies. And that sets us up for our final covenant, which is the covenant that we live under, which is the new covenant. It's first articulated in the book of Jeremiah, uh, but is fleshed out in the New Testament. And basically in this covenant, God says, I'm going to do it all for you. All those things that we need that were articulated in all the covenants that came before, you have been unable to do. And that was kind of the point to show that you were unable to do them. And now I'm going to do it for you. So the serpent is crushed. God's wrath against sin is exhausted. His people are gathered. His law is fulfilled. His king is reigning. The people are righteous and live in God's kingdom in peace that they have, and they have rest from their labor. Now, we only have the down payment on that rest now. Ultimately, that's in heaven. But we, ha- we do have that down payment. We have peace with God, and we no longer have to work in order to be able to obtain salvation. 
So when you're looking at your Old Testament passages, view the passage you're reading through the lens of the relevant covenant and you will see ways to understand it better. And again, for more details on each of the individual covenants, see that sermon that I referenced before from the 17th of September in 2017. So that's one dimension, each of the covenants listed out. But there's actually a couple of patterns that happen within the covenants that are helpful to see and be helpful to you in interpreting the Old Testament. These two pa- the first of these two patterns goes like this. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. So when you're reading your Bible text, um, look for this pattern and understand where in that pattern you are within the current covenant. A couple of examples. Adam is created and then falls, but a promise is made and, new ch- and children are born. The nation of Israel, as another example, is established, but they sin and are judged. But then a new leader comes and resets their affection for God. You see this over and over and over again in the book of Judges. right? If you want to see real clear uh, evidences of that cycle, look in the book of Judges. It happens in small loops there. Happens over and over. So ask where your passage is in this progression to get better insight about what things might mean. Second pattern that we can see within these covenants as well. This one is not so much around the pattern of the progression of the covenant itself, but it's just kind of the the context for the covenant, if you will. It can be summed summed up in these three things. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. These, teach, these details change as we move from covenant to covenant and passage to passage. So as you read the Old Testament, ask who the people of God are. Often, a word you can use to listen for is remnant. That's, you, that's often a word that indicates who the people of God specifically are in your passage. Ask where God's special place of, or God's special place of rule is at this time. Is it? Are they in Israel? Are they out of Israel because they are in exile, those kinds of questions, right? So where are they? And then ask the terms and conditions of what what the terms and conditions of God's rule are at this time. I mean, obviously we have the law that over overarches the entire Old Testament, right? But we have particulars about that, particularly the words of the prophets that come out uh, along the way that give context to what, God, what God's particular concerns are for them at any given point in time. So what are the terms and conditions of God's rule at the time in, of the passage that you're reading? All of these things will help you in interpreting what these Old Testament passages are. These Old Testament passages are foreign to us, aren't they? Uh, so we need, to, we need to be careful in terms of understanding what they are, and hopefully that'll help. So here's an example out of Leviticus. So Leviticus 19.19. 19. You shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. We can't move directly from this text and apply it to our lives for the simple reason that we don't live under the Mosaic Covenant law concerning apparel anymore. This law was given under the Mosaic Covenant and applied to Israel for the purpose of setting them apart as a holy and separate people. This commandment is a part of a large group of commandments in Leviticus 19 that call Israel to conform to God's holiness by keeping separate from the pagan nations around them. But the question is, how does this apply to us as Christians? Christ has come and perfectly fulfilled the Mosaic law and inaugurated the new covenant through his sacrificial death and resurrection. The church, like Israel, is called to be a holy people even as God is holy. 
But under the new covenant, we are marked off as God's chosen people, not by clothes or by obeying other laws, but by the Holy Spirit. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ through the Holy Spirit, right? By being pure and blameless in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That language is New Testament language. So when you interpret an Old Testament text, you want to see where this passage is within the biblical storyline and use that to help you understand how it is that you bring it forward and apply it to yourself. Now, some of the things you saw in my example, we're going to talk about in a minute. Some of those things you'll understand a little bit more as we cover some of the other lenses or principles that we can use with interpretation. The third lens is the canon. Actually, any, que- any questions so far? Let me stop there and ask questions. Dean. I got a little distracted and missed when you covered G. Could you just give me the 40,000 foot? G, which one is G? Uh, you know what? I had that in the wrong place in my notes. Let me cover that right now. Yeah. What, what did I put there? Sorry, I, I, I know what I wanted to say there, and somehow it didn't end up in this copy of my notes. Yeah, all covenants, oh, drive and resolve to the new covenant. That was, actually I did. Uh, that was under, when I was talking about the new covenant right at the end. Um, thank you for asking that. Sorry, I was thinking of something else. Um, so in the new covenant, um, when, we, when we're talking about that, and I, I summarized it this way, the serpent is crushed, God's wrath against sin is exhausted, his people are gathered, his law is fulfilled, and his king is reigning. So if you look at that description, you're going to see pieces and parts of all of the different covenants come to resolution within the new covenant in a way that, doesn't, that wasn't there before, right? So the mo- you, with each of the previous ones, you might have a new dimension or something that was brought further along, but you didn't necessarily have this fulfillment idea. Whereas with the New Covenant, you have this fulfillment idea, and that's the primary goal and the primary uh, drive of the New Covenant is to fulfill all of the ones that came beforehand. Right? That, that, so thank you for clarifying that. I meant to bring that out a little more clearly. Other, other questions? Covenant? Yeah, the serpent is crushed. God's wrath against sin is exhausted. His people are gathered, his law is fulfilled, and his king is reigning. And the people are righteous and live in God's kingdom in peace, and they have rest from their labor. You saw elements of all of those things in the other covenants. And they're all summarized and fulfilled in the new. Good. Let's move on to our third lens. If you think of other questions, there'll be more, there'll be more time for that in a, in a bit. Third interpretive lens is the lens of canon. Canon is the collected ter- collective term used to describe the list of books in the Bible. If you've ever read through the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, did you notice that the Old Testament is essentially full of itself? One part of Later parts of the Old Testament refer back to, to, to earlier parts, right? Think of Psalm 95. In there we read this. Do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. Uh, this, or, or, so there you're referring back to the Exodus and seeing what happened there. And the, the psalmist is using that as he is exhorting the, exhorting the people of God through the psalm. Or later, uh, the second half of the book of Daniel, 
Daniel's chapters 9 through 12. That's a vision that Daniel received that helps interpret a prophecy that originally was given earlier to Jeremiah. So we can see that later parts of the Old Testament give us detail about and and help us to see how earlier parts of the Old Testament were were fulfilled. Also, if you read your New Testament carefully, you'll see many places where the Holy Spirit shows us how to understand Old Testament texts. This is one of those areas where the canon of the Bible, the books of the Bible, help us to interpret. Jesus helps us to understand the point of the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, right? For example, he shows uh, how hatred is really the same as murder, linking it back to that Old Testament idea. In the book of Hebrews, we have an interpretational guide to many events and concepts from the Old Testament. So read your New Testament carefully, and when you're interpreting the Old Testament, and, and in there you find passages that are quoted in the New, be sure to follow the New Testament's lead in interpretation. Ask yourself, how does the New Testament author's understanding of this passage impact my interpretation? And the second handout I gave you today is a list of all the places in the New Testament that the Old Testament is referred to and quoted. So this will be a helpful resource. If you're trying to find an old, understand an Old Testament passage, find it on here, see where it might be referred to in the New Testament, and the New Testament can help you understand what might have been intended uh, by, by that Old Testament passage. So that will be a helpful resource to you. As you make these canonical connections, you'll begin to see what the biblical writers themselves are highlighting, and you'll be able to see how the prophecies and promises given early in the canon are fulfilled later on. One of the, key, one of the keys to making these connections is tools like this, but also um, a good cross-reference system in your Bible. So check the cross-references that that are listed for each of your passages, and that will help you see and understand either what words might mean or passages might mean as a whole. Interpretive lens number four is the character of God. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, when you're reading the Old Testament, take special note... (coughs) Of, of texts that speak of who God is and what God is like. We can be tempted to rush to life application, but often when we're in the Old Testament, the right thing to do is just sit and meditate on what the passage reveals about Almighty God. For example, much of Psalm 90 is simply a reflection by Moses on God's unchanging character. His eternal and ever, he's eternal and everlasting, verses 2 and 4. He's sovereign over life and death as the mighty creator, verses 2, 3, 5, and 6. He's a, ho- he's a God of holy wrath, verses 7 through 8 and 11. He's a God of mercy, pity, and steadfast love in verses 13 through 14. And he's the God who is gloriously powerful and beautiful in verses 16 and 17. When interpreting the Old Testament, take note and marvel at the character of God. One more before we transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And that last one is Jesus Christ himself. The final interpretive lens is the most important. We can't forget about Jesus. The Old Testament, after all, is Christian scripture. Yes, it was Jewish first, but it is Christian scripture. The Old Testament points to, foretells, lays the groundwork for, teaches about, sets up, and previews Jesus Christ. 
When we interpret an Old Testament text, we want to ask questions like, how does this point forward to Jesus? Or how is this text fulfilled by Jesus? We see this most clearly taught in the New Testament when we look at Luke 24. Luke 24, this, uh, Luke 24, 25 through 27 is printed out in your handout so you can follow along. Here we have the resurrected Jesus secretly joining two of the disciples as they walk on the road to Emmaus. Verse 25, He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Here's the, here's the key thing. Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now skip down to verse 44, where Christ appears to the rest of the disciples. In verse 44 it says, He, says, he said to them, This is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Here Jesus teaches that he is present in and central to the understanding of the Old Testament. In fact, he chastises his followers for not seeing this. So as you read the the Old Testament, don't make the same mistake that they did. Ask how the passage that you are interpreting predicts, prepares for, points to, reflects, or results from the person and or work of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells his disciples on the road to Emmaus that the Old Testament is all about him. If Jesus does not come and give his life as a ransom for God's people, then the Old Testament is nothing but a bunch of unkept promises, unfulfilled prophecies, and a history of an unimportant nation. If, however, Jesus is the promised Messiah, then studying the Old Testament is essential for those who claim to follow Jesus because this is where we see glimpses of Christ and where we learn how he has worked for the salvation of his people from the beginning. A couple of pitfalls to avoid as we wrap up our discussion of the Old Testament. Pitfalls to avoid when interpreting. Avoid moralistic interpretations and application. Be like David. Don't be like Esau. Those kinds of things may be warranted, but don't jump to that as your first conclusion. Interpretations in line with these five lenses and principles are going to be much more robust and instructive to you as you follow Jesus in your walk and in your day-to-day walk than trying to be like a person. That's not usually the intention of the Old Testament text. Number two, allow the Old Testament to be different from the New Testament. God hasn't changed but he has revealed himself progressively. And so we need to interpret in light of that and allow for differences as we move through the text of the the Bible, especially through the text of the Old Testament. Number three, and this is the last one, do not tie Israel too closely with the church. It can be easy to say, ah, church, that means, I mean Israel, that means I'm talking about the church. Might be true, but the, the reality is uh, the primary fulfillment of the type of Israel is Jesus himself and not necessarily the church. So that's, a, that's, a, that's one I would recommend that you avoid. That wraps up our, com- our discussion of Old Testament uh, interpretation. Any questions there before we switch to the New Testament? Kevin? Do I have that reversed? 
Yeah, you're right. That is, that is reversed that way. I didn't notice that, but yes, it's going to be trickier to find. I'll see if I can find one. I'll see if I can find one that's organized the other way. This one came with the material, so I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't very discerning about that dimension of it, but I'll see if I can find one that's organized the other way. All right. Keep thinking of questions. We'll have a little. We should have a little bit of time at the end, as long as I don't linger too long. So, interpreting the, the New Testament, we're going to switch our focus now, Old Testament to New Testament. Again, keep in mind that some of those principles that we just talked to are still going to be very helpful in the New Testament, but I'm not going to go over them again. Okay. Context is going to be really important. We're going to talk about that more. Um, and some of the other ones as well. But what I want to do for the New Testament is I want to give you four basic ideas or things to remember when you're reading your New Testament books to help you interpret well. Number one, in the New Testament, remember the basic genres. We're going to cover this in more detail next week. Next week is all going to be about Bible genres and the different kinds of literature we find there. But it's still helpful to note that when you're looking at the New Testament, the genres can be particularly helpful. And the New, the New Testament can be divided into three kinds of literature. We have the Gospels and Acts that are historical narrative, right? They're accounts of Jesus, the, either Jesus' life or the life of the apostles. The Gospels represent Jesus as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises of God and, the, and his desire to send a Savior for his people. The second kind of literature we have is epistles or letters, these are written in general to teach Christians what it means to follow Christ. So we have Christ who came, died, resurrected, but what does that mean? How is it that we work that self out? That's fleshed out largely in the epistles. And then our last genre is apocalyptic literature, um, which consists of the book of Revelation and a couple of other isolated passages within some of the other books. And these passages are intended to give a vision of the end times as, as, in order to prepare believers for what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. Part of what it means to do your best in rightly handling the word of truth is to recognize the genre and let it shape how you read, interpret, and apply a passage. And again, we're going to go over all of the genres in much more detail next week. So, um, uh, so that, that'll, that'll be helpful. Number two. In the Gospels, remember to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. The New Testament begins with four Gospels, which are a particular kind of historical narrative. They're not exactly biographies, so if you read them like biography, you're going to find, you're going to find yourself in tension with the text. They're not exactly biographies, but they are intentionally shaped to highlight the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus, especially his death and resurrection. You know, it's like for the book, the book of John, for example, a full half of the book is in the last week of Jesus' life because it's there, there, he's highlighting the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's his main focus. Sinclair Ferguson reminds us that when you read the Gospels, don't lose sight of Jesus, keep your eyes fixed on him. This principle guards against the tendency to first ask, what is this passage telling me about me? Or who am I like in this story? Instead, we should ask first and foremost, what does this passage tell me about the Lord Jesus Christ? Take, for example, the account uh, in the Gospel of Luke about Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness at the outset of his earthly ministry. If you want to turn your Bible to Luke 4, you're welcome to. Otherwise, you can just listen. 
This is Luke 4, starting in chapter 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, turned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a, in a moment of time. And he said to him, I tell, I, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The primary truth taught in this passage is not how to fight temptation like Jesus did. Fighting temptation is a secondary implication of the text, but the main point is that unlike Adam and unlike Israel, Jesus is the faithful Son of God. Adam, the Son of God, was tempted in the garden and and proved unfaithful. Israel, the Son of God, was tempted in the wilderness and proved unfaithful. But Jesus, the eternal Son of God, made flesh after going through the waters of baptism, was led out to the wilderness for 40 days and nights, was tempted, and proved himself to be faithful. Jesus is not first and foremost our model, but our substitute. So in this text, we keep our eyes on Jesus, and we see that we have reasons to glorify him as the faithful and obedient son who from the outset of his ministry endured temptation and yet did not sin. But we, like Adam and Israel, have disobeyed and failed. His obedience is credited to us through faith. So when you read any passage in the Gospels, make sure you take careful note of what Jesus did, what Jesus taught, who Jesus is, and what it means to be his disciples. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Principle number three. In the epistles, so this is who covered the Gospels, now we're into that second genre of the epistles, the letters. Remember the indicative imperative pattern. About one-third of the New Testament is made up of the epistles or letters. So that's the bulk of the New Testament is these letters that various apostles wrote to churches. The letters represent one side of that two-way conversation. These letters are written for us, but they are not written to us. Right? So the key questions we, uh, to when interpreting an epistle is, what did this passage say to its first recipient? As you read and reread the New Testament epistles, you might notice a pattern. The commands and exhortations of the gospel, imperatives, you need to do that, always rise from the, expo- the exposition of God's grace in the gospel, indicatives. God has done this. So God has done this, Therefore, you need to do that. Imperatives flow from indicatives. You have been forgiven, indicative. Therefore, forgive, imperative. 
You have been made holy through Christ, a declaration. Therefore, be holy in your conduct, a command. We see this in, in the First Peter passage in your handout. So look at, look at your handouts and look at that passage from First Peter. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. First Peter 1, 14-16. But notice how Peter grounds his imperative to holiness in the glorious indicatives of God's saving call and his holiness. We are to be holy precisely because the one who called us savingly to himself is holy. Our pursuit of holiness rests on the sure foundation of the holiness of God. If we are aware of, if we are his children, we should strive to be like him in all our conduct. This imperative indicative pattern is also common in the structure of entire epistles. Both Romans and Ephesians are generally follow the pattern of this is what God has done for you in Christ, followed by since God has done all this for you in Christ, here's how you should live in the power of the Holy Spirit. So in Ephesians 1 through 3, God expounds the riches of God's grace towards us in Jesus. That's indicative. And in Ephesians 4 through 6, the apostle draws out implications and applies and exhorts his readers to holiness. Or, in Paul's letter to the Romans, it is generally understood that chapters 1 through 11 are indicative, followed by the imperatives in chapters 12 through 16. So learn this pattern and look for it in the epistles, and it will help you to understand how to, how to interpret and apply this, the text to yourself. Fourth and final applica- uh, um, principle in terms of understanding your New Testament. In application, remember what the scripture is for. Studying the New Testament and the Old Testament as well is profitable for your life and for your doctrine. We conclude with a reminder that our study of the New Testament should aim should have the aim of obedience. Jesus commanded his disciples to make disciples and to teach them, quote, to observe everything that I have commanded you, Matthew twenty eight, nineteen and twenty. God forbid that we would be those who study the New Testament and gaze into the mirror of God's perfect word only to walk away unchanged and unaffected. We should strive to be doers of the word and not just hearers only, as James chapter 1 exhorts us. So by way of conclusion, the the Old Testament and New Testament are rich treasures of truth. But we must must read and interpret them correctly in in order to lay hold of that truth. May we use these lenses and principles as we study so that we understand the scriptures correctly and so that we know and understand God's great plan so that we can be a part of that plan and therefore honor and praise our good, holy, and sovereign God. In Ezra 7.10, it says this, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and rules in Israel. We need to pray that we would have the same heart that Ezra did here that we would desire and know God in the way that, De- that Ezra was desiring to know, to know him. So with that, I'll turn it over to you. Are there any questions that this has generated? I know that was a lot of information. I had to go through it quickly because I had a lot to cover today. Um, but questions. We've got, a, we've got about five, five minutes or so to, to just discuss. Questions, comments, thoughts, things that stood out to you as being particularly helpful 
Was I confusing at any point? Yeah. It is. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, it's, it's pretty much helpful in any book that you look at, who the audience is. Uh, and the, I mean, when you're, when you're applying that concept to the Old Testament, uh, the audience is a little trickier because you know, you're talking about narrative, and narrative, the, the audience can be difficult to, to assess at the book level. But the, the Gospels were written. Sometimes we have clues, like the Gospel of Luke and, the, and Acts, right, were both Luke writing to a particular person and trying to present the gospel to that person. So, that's, so there's audience there. But no matter what, even in a narrative section, you at least have the audiences of, of what's happening in the scene that you're looking at. So you're looking at Jesus on the sermon, on, uh, he's giving the Sermon on the Mount. You can read from, from the context of the book, who is the audience that Jesus was actually talking to at that point in time. Same thing in the Old Testament. When you're talking about an Old Testament narrative, you have you know, uh, Moses speaking to the people from the mountain. Who's the audience in that one? Well, the audience is the people that he's speaking to right there in the text, right? And understanding that will help you understand whether or not, um, you know, how to interpret. Like in the Old Testament, clearly you're not going to be talking about understand that Jesus is God when Moses is talking to the Israelites in the, at the foot of the mountain because they had no idea. I mean, that's just a silly example, right? But, you know, so understanding that audience, even in a narrative context, does help. Yes, good question. Other places that I can clarify? Yeah, Dean, Damien. The, uh, um, the author's perspective of what's going on, is that why they're kind of different but the same? What, what kind of what is different but the same? I'm not quite following well, the question, Damien. Each author in each gospel has, it appears to me, a different view of what was happening from the other gospel. Right. Right. Yeah, so you're talking about the Gospels in particular and seeing the fact that the Gospels are all written by different authors. And yes, I think the, the, the goal of that is to be able to give us different perspectives on what was happening in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, right? And each one of them has their own unique perspective. And the other interesting thing there is each one of them uses the same stories in slightly different kinds of ways, right? They remember slightly different things about the stories, or maybe more, maybe a more accurate way to say that is they were highlighting slightly different things about the stories, right? They have, each one of them has an overarching point that they're trying to make, and that's why if you read the Gospels as biography, you're going to run into trouble, right? Because they're not really biography. They are biographical, but they are not biographies of Jesus. The, the authors have their own intended messages that we are trying to understand. Some of them are very clear. The book of John, if you go to the end of John, uh, chapter 20, is it 2021? John says, this is my point in writing the book, right? He's very clear about his purpose. Um, so, uh, and everything that he does, including the details he decides to include and those he doesn't decide to include are to serve that purpose, right? So yes, excellent point, Damien. Yeah, Missy. Sure. A little bit more on why the epistles are written for us, but not to us. So uh, the second half of that is just a simple statement of truth, right? Paul didn't write his letter to Redeeming Grace Church. He wrote it to somebody else. But they are written for us in the sense that they were included in the canon of Scripture, 
And the canon of Scripture is intended to be given as the, the means that we can use to understand who God is and how we are to live our lives as believers here on earth between, between the first and second comings of Christ. So in, in, in that sense, they are written for our benefit. They are recorded and kept in the, in the, and preserved in Scripture for our benefit. But we always have to remember that because they were not actually written to us, we need to be careful to first understand who they were written to. And, and when we understand what that original message was and what the original context for that message was, now we can accurately apply it to ourselves. Um, so one of the places that helps is in the epistles. Occasionally you'll have uh, cultural details that rise to the surface. Right? And those cultural details need to be weeded out for us to be able to understand the principles that underlie those, 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 or those circumstances that the author might be interacting with. For example, we don't actually have a problem with going to the grocery store and getting meat and being worried about whether that meat was sacrificed to an idol. Just not something we have to worry about. But there are principles that are in, in the midst of all of that that we regularly use to understand ourselves. So that would be an example of where we need to understand that it was written to people in a particular context, and understanding that is helpful to our interpretation. But always remembering that it wasn't just, we're not just reading some historical book about what happened at that time, and oh, that's interesting information. It was really written and preserved for our benefit. Yeah, good question, Missy. Yeah, well, we're going to have to cut it off there. We're a, little, we're a little beyond our time. Good questions, good interaction. Again, if you have any more questions, feel free to email me. Um, I can, I'd be happy to address other questions uh, or catch me afterwards. Be uh, willing to add, address other questions in, in, in future classes. Let me pray for us as we close. Father in heaven, we are...